Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. From two beautifully scenic and historic locations, the Hudson Valley, New York, and Willow, Alaska, this is The Side Vibe, brought to you by Dog Works Radio. Your hosts are author, journalist, and photographer, the Five Sides mom, Dorothy Wills Raftery, and Dog Works Radio executive producer, canine behaviorist, trainer, and lead musher of Team Aneke, Robert Forto. The Side Vibe is all about the magnificent breed of the Siberian Husky. From training to grooming and for those who show and breed, from parenting to playing and rescuing Huskies in need, whether mushing over snow-covered trails or lounging on tropical shores, even for Hollywood sides on the big silver screen and so very much more. If it's about a Siberian Husky, we'll chat about it here. Hello, welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto hosting from the mushing capital of the world, Willow, Alaska, on a beautiful Sunday morning here. Lots of snow, probably three or four feet on the ground, and looking forward to taking the dog teams out this afternoon. And sitting beside me is my daughter, junior musher Nicole Forto, but on the line is the host of the Sci Vibe, Dorothy. How's it going? Hi, Robert. Hi, Nicole. It's uh, it's going well. Um, re- really excited that you guys are on the show today. Um, it's really great to uh, you know uh, basically get you on the other side of the mic, so to say. Um, so I'm really looking forward to to chatting. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure for us to be on. I know Nicole has been on this show several times in its four year history, but she's looking forward to being interviewed by somebody other than her dad. <laughs> Um, Well, I just want to reach out and say hello to everyone uh, who's listening. Um, A lot of them are our listeners. A lot of them are our followers on Facebook and on our websites. And uh, I want to officially welcome to today's episode of Side Vibe here on Dog Works Radio. Um, And and it's all... It's almost Iditarod season in Alaska, so with the great race kicking off on March 2nd, today's guests include, of course, our very own the Sci Vibe co-host and executive producer of the family of Dog Works radio shows, musher, canine behaviorist, and trainer, and Iditarod 2014 hopeful Robert Fordo. Robert is a canine behaviorist and the lead trainer at Alaska Dog Works. He's also the training director for Dog Works Training Centers and also hosts the weekly Dog Works radio show that's geared toward educating dog owners in canine sports, working dogs, and canine training. Um, he also hosts, along with his wife, Michelle Mushu Huskies, a radio program about everything in the world of dog-powered sports and concentrating on mushing. Um, as everybody knows, he's my co-host. I'm fortunate to have him. And um, he's uh, also currently training team in Eke, and uh, like I said, they're hoping for, uh, you know, to get into the Iditarod next year, so we'll all be really watching and rooting. Um, you can find Robert and team in Eke and DogWorks Media both on Twitter and Facebook, and also teamineke.com, their website. And as Robert said, today with him is his teenage daughter, Nicole, who is a junior musher for team in Eke, and Nicole just ran the team in the Willow Junior 100 race, and there are some great photos of the team, and of Nicole um, that's posted on the Team Ineke Facebook page. And I've also been posting some over on the our Facebook page, the Five Sides Siberian Husky Canine News and Reviews page. Um, now, according to her proud dad, Nicole ran her first race at age three with her dog, Tamaya. Am I saying that right? Yeah. 
Um, but this past fall is when she really got serious about racing. Um, but the family connection does not stop there. Robert's son, Tyler, and wife, Michelle, round out the family mushing team. Um, actually, in the current issue of American Pet Magazine, there's an article I wrote called Chasing Down, the, Chasing Down a Dream on Robert and Team Ineke. And our listeners and readers can check it out at AmericanPetMagazine.com. It's in Volume 2, Issue 1, and on Page 6. Uh, Robert, it's great to have you, like I said, on the other side of the mic, so um, I want to give a big welcome to you and Nicole, and uh, Nicole, thanks for joining your dad on the show today. I know there's many young dog and sledding enthusiasts that's going to love to hear about your experience in mushing. Um, so, Robert, um, why don't we first start talking about how you first got interested in mushing. I know you and I have talked about this when I was writing the article, and I was hoping maybe you can kind of share that with the listeners, all about that trip that started with uh, Oregon and ended up in the mountains of Georgia and bringing Huskies into your lives? Well, you know, it started in 1986. I was 16 years old, living in Portland, Oregon at the time, and just saw an ad in the newspaper for a Siberian. I had, had no idea at that time what a Siberian was. I'd, I'd grown up with Springer Spaniels and mutts from the shelter and all that sort of stuff, but I, I went out on a limb and, and got my first Siberian at, at, the, uh, at the young age of 16. I named him Axel Okeechobee Wanatobi. He, <laughs> he was named after Axel Rose, the very popular Guns N' Roses singer at the time. Of course, I was a hard rock fan at that point, and Axel was with me for a long time. He and I uh, got involved in a few events, no sledding at that time, just, you know, competition obedience and that sort of stuff. But in 1994, I was in college at Portland State and heading down to Fort Myers Beach, Florida during spring break and uh, caught word of a couple of dogs for sale in Georgia. So I was driving a old 1975 280Z at the time and took a little bit of a side trip over to the mountains of Georgia, went to a Siberian Husky kennel and they had all these bouncy, jumping-up dogs, and, you know, of course, I, being a Siberian lover, I fell in love right then, and and I was looking at one pretty closely, uh, a little red and white guy, and, and uh, didn't quite make up my mind yet, and the lady said, how about we go for a ride? And, of course, I didn't know what she was talking about at that point, and she hooked up all of her dogs to an old Seiko cart. A Seiko cart is a, it's kind of a... Of a a four-wheeled cart that you sit down in, kind of like a, a recumbent bicycle. And it had two seats on it, and we hooked up a big team of about 10 or 12 dogs, and I sat beside her, and we took off through the mountains. And at that point, I was hooked. And not too long after that, after I had purchased those two dogs, their names were Rutger the Great and King Reich at that time. After I got those guys, pretty soon two became four, four became eight, eight became 16, and Anybody that knows anything about Siberians and the potato chip syndrome, we quickly have several of them uh, before too long. And, and shortly thereafter, I had my own team of Siberian Huskies, and we were racing in Minnesota and trying our best to, to learn our, our ropes, so to speak, in mushing. And, and that's carried us up to where we are today. Now, uh, you had a Siberian Husky, Aneke, and uh, Aneke is really what really – kind of pushed everything ahead and started the whole team. Can you tell us about Aneke? Yeah, it was 2000, March of 2000, and Internet was not that big a deal at that time. We were on some, what do they call them, list-served lists? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were on a couple of those email-type lists 
for dog sledding and, you know, Siberians and that sort of thing. And one came up for adoption. And we contacted him. We were living in Colorado at the time. And we made arrangements to have this dog flown to us. And we did not expect what we got in the crate at the airport. We were expecting something a little bit different. And we ended up uh, finding our friend there, Aneke. He was a kind of a long-haired, black-and-white, blue-eyed boy missing one lower canine tooth had a very unique look about him you know he was a rescue so we didn't know what to expect and we took him out of the crate and took him into the into the truck and drove him up into the mountains where we lived and the next day we hooked him up to the team Uh, we had several siberians at that time all rescued from from one place or another we hooked up a into the team and he seemed to know exactly what he was doing and within a couple of months, he just kind of fell in, in love with me, and, and I fell in love with him. And pretty soon, he was the house dog, and for the next 13 years or so, he was my best buddy. Oh, that's awesome. Now, you moved from Colorado to Alaska, and I know there's a story with Aneke in there as well. And uh, what was that transition like? And I know that was all part of your dream of moving to Alaska and continuing this on. And maybe you can just kind of take us through that story a little bit. Well, you know, Dorothy, Nicole has a big part of that story, and I think we're going to let her tell it uh, when right? it becomes her turn. Okay. But, you know, when we were preparing to move to Alaska, it wasn't it wasn't a sure thing. At that point, it was summer of 2010, and we were looking at several places. We were living in Aurora, Colorado. We had given up mushing for a long time at that point. We were running Denver Dog Works at the time, and you know, we often say that life kind of got in the way in terms of mushing. We had gotten out of it because it's tough to be a mushing family with little kids, being out of school so much on the weekends to race and all that. So we had gotten out of it pretty much. And Aneke was getting older, and he was really the only one that we had kept from our old team. We had placed all of our other guys. And he he was, he was you know, he was declining fast. So we, we had to figure out what we were going to do if we were going to continue this dream. We had thought that he had come down with what we call doggy Alzheimer's or canine dementia at that point, literally like a, uh, like a human with that condition. He, he, he would find himself kind of stuck in a corner and couldn't get out. And he was, he was really struggling. So we knew that it was time to, to let him go, so to speak. So anyway, we, uh, we looked at places in Minnesota. We looked at places in California and we, on a whim and a hair, we looked at a place in Alaska. And I'm going to let Nicole tell the rest of the story when it's her turn here in a minute. But anyway, we ended up moving to Alaska, and here we are. We have 36 dogs down in the dog lot right below us here. Five or six Siberians. How many How many Siberians do we have now, Nicole? Five. We have five Siberians now. So we we don't have the Siberians as we used to, full teams of them, but we have several mixed in, a couple of great Siberians, uh, Reagan and, and Bodie, and I'm sure we'll talk about those as it's coming up. Right, because you run a mix, Siberian and Alaskan Huskies, right? Yes. Right, okay, yeah. And uh, maybe just uh, briefly, can you just, for some of our listeners, maybe they don't understand the difference um, between an Alaskan Husky and a Siberian Husky, and I know there is confusion with folks who may be not uh, aware of the difference. Can you maybe just uh, give a little uh, overview of what the difference between a Siberian and an Alaskan is? Well, I'm sure all of your listeners know exactly what a Siberian is, so yeah. I'll leave that I'll leave that to the listeners. But an Alaskan Husky is is... 
frankly just a mixed breed dog. It's a mutt, and it could have anything uh, mixed in, including Alaskan Malamute. It could have a lot of hound group. Uh, we were down at the Fur Rondi races, which is a world class sprint race downtown yesterday, and they're they're running a lot of. German short-haired pointer mixes in their lines. They can have retriever. It's just a mixture of a dog. They don't necessarily look a lot alike like the Siberian. Some of them don't have pointy ears and long coats. They look more like hound dogs. Whereas, now, go now, ahead. Now are they bred? They're bred specifically more for speed and endurance for racing. Yes. Yes. Uh, about 20 years or so ago. Uh, the Siberians were just getting the the socks knocked off of them in races, and it was time to it's time for mushing to evolve. Very similar to how other sports evolved with equipment and and different things. Well, they 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 got a hold of a bunch of village dogs over from the Alaskan villages and whatnot, and and started breeding those guys with their with their hound dogs and their and their retrievers and things, looking for speed, looking for uh, endurance, as as you mentioned, and the, and that's where the Alaskan was born. A little bit bigger, a little bit stockier, a little bit fleeter terms in terms of running than the Siberian. Uh, it's just a different dog altogether. I know I sent you some pictures over yesterday of mm-hmm. what racing Siberians look like compared to the pet Siberians. Maybe you can post that on your on your wall later today. I'll give a good uh, indication of what they that. are. Yeah, I'll definitely do that because it was quite interesting for me to see too, like size-wise and look-wise. Um, so I'll definitely be putting that up. Um, before we continue on, I would actually, uh, Nicole, if you don't mind jumping in, I'd love you to finish, you know, the story so this way everyone kind of has the background before we, we move forward on, on the rest of what we want to talk about. So do you want to pick up where your dad left off on, on the uh, move to Alaska? Yes, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, well, what happened was when we were living in Aurora, they came up with the great idea to move Alaska to Alaska, and I didn't want to go. I absolutely hated the idea. I don't like the cold. The negative 25-degree weather didn't sound great to me. And then uh, July 4th weekend of 2010, we came up, and as soon as I stepped out of the airport, it was pretty much love at first sight. It It's really beautiful here, and the air is a lot cleaner than what it is in Colorado. And then we saw the house, and... It it was a lot of work when I first saw it, but I still said okay, and so we wrote the check, and now we live here. So what what did I say? I, I know we've told this story a bunch of times, Nicole. We were here at the house uh, with our friend Dave Shear, who is also an Iditarod musher, and I said I said to to Nicole, what did I say to to tell your mom? Tell her we're moving here? No, I said, I told her, Dorothy, I said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I said, I want you to text your mom, yes or no, we're moving to Alaska. Her mom was still in Colorado and working. It was a Saturday morning at that time. And I said, text your mom and let her know, yes or no, whether we're moving. So what I did is I put the the purchase of the home in the hands of a 12-year-old at that point. <laughs> what did you do, Nicole? Uh, well, I texted her and I told her you were writing a check, <laughs> and we're moving. 
Uh, actually, I think it's a wise decision putting it in a 12-year-old because I, I think our kids could probably make or break some of our decisions. Um, they, they could. They could. And you know, Dorothy, as, as Nicole mentioned, very, very much a, a, an early teenager at that point. She didn't want to go. She didn't want to be away from her friends. She didn't want to be away from the quote-unquote social life of the big city. She She wasn't quite ready until she stepped foot in this awesome state. And at that point, like so many people are when they come to Alaska, they are hooked. And, Nicole, I mean, it's just it's wonderful to hear how you fell in love with the state. And how, how was the transition for you, you know, the actual move and leaving your friends? I mean, and how did, that, how did that work for you? I mean, obviously it's worked for you, but it'd be nice to just kind of hear from your perspective. Well, I moved in the middle of winter. And, of course, the day I got here, it wasn't very cold. And then... The first day I started school, it was negative 18, and my mind was like, well, this isn't right. We shouldn't be going to school, because in Colorado, school gets canceled if it's below 10 degrees. So it was a bit of a shock to me, and it was very cold, so I didn't like it at all. But everyone up here was so welcoming, so much more than they are in the city, and so it was pretty much that I fell into place at school and in a social group, and I've found now that I've been here for over a year that I actually prefer living in the middle of nowhere to the city. Wow, that's great. Now, Ineke had a part of this too, but never quite made the move to Alaska. Is that right? Right. Right. Uh, that part of the story is pretty interesting. We had we had decided at on as as Nicole said we decided on that July 4th weekend that we were going to go ahead and do this and we were set to close a couple of weeks later towards the end of July at that point and and I don't know if it was fate I don't know if it was destiny or what but the day that we signed the papers the closing papers uh the next day uh Neke was really struggling and and he woke up we woke up and you know it was it was time so to speak and and he passed away uh the day after we signed the papers and and what we always said was you know he kind of said okay we I did my part it's time for you to go do yours and a couple of weeks later I was here and uh we had gotten uh we had gotten the dream on the road at that point uh, it was time to uh get down to business and see what we can do in in honor of our buddy Aneke and the team Aneke was formed that day. And I, I, I know I wrote this in the article, and I was very touched by this. And Aneke is, in a sense, well, they're always still with us when they leave. But you right. do still have Aneke's ashes, and you have a very special plan for them. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, once we get on the Iditarod Trail, hopefully, it, hopefully it's next year. If not, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit longer. I'm sure in a little bit in a little while. But we do have a Neke's ashes, and our plan is once we do cross that that finish line in Nome, he will he will be with me in the sled on that thousand mile journey, and and hopefully we can spread his ashes there and he uh, under the arch in Nome, and and you know full circle. You know I'm a oh. big believer of that full circle uh, tactic, and and that's what our plan is with our with our buddy Neke. Absolutely, and he will have run the dream with you for sure. Exactly. Uh, now, I just want to uh, step aside a little bit from mushing. And, Robert, in addition to your sled dogs, mushing, racing, um, being a dad, being a husband, you're also a canine trainer, behaviorist, you're the executive producer of my show and the whole family of Dog Works radio shows. How do you find the time to juggle it all? 
You know, we, we literally live with a pack of dogs. It's something we do 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, we do a lot of individual training as well. As soon as we get off the show, Michelle and I are heading down to Eagle River about an hour away to work with a, a client with a therapy dog. So we are, we're doing something with dogs all the time, whether it's our own dogs or, or clients' dogs. We do a lot of service dog training up here in Alaska, a lot of uh, PTSD, a lot of psychiatric-type uh, service dog training, and, of course, your basic uh, house pet, whether it's the Golden Retriever or the Labrador or the, the Pit Bull or whatever. We do a lot of basic obedience for folks. Cause, you know, a, a well-trained dog, as I say, is a well-trained dog is a happy owner. Right, exactly. And you, with your shows, how many shows do you do, and what inspired you to actually begin the Dog Works Radio and the Mushu Husky program, you know, the family of shows? Well, our Dog Works Radio has been on the air for four years as of January 31st, so we just celebrated our fourth anniversary, had well over a million listeners to our show at this point. So a lot of people are finding out really good information about Dog Works Radio. We have a lot of great guests, a lot of uh, writers and authors and uh, people that make films about dogs and, of course, dog trainers from all over the world we've had on that show. Uh, a year ago, this Wednesday, will be our premiere broadcast of Mushing Radio, which is uh, aired on a local uh, radio station here in Alaska, and we do interview a lot of the Iditarod mushers and a lot of local mushers, you know, a lot of history of mushing. This is, of course, the, the state sport of Alaska, so we air that program on a local radio show. I like to say we made it to the big time. We're on the real radio at that point. That's and of excellent. Course, and that that of course is broadcast on our on our website after the afterwards mushingradio.com and then mushing mushu huskies is something my wife and I started a couple of years ago mainly to to draw more attention to uh dog powered sports you know whether it be mushing or or weight pulling or cane across or something like that and we give a lot of mushing history on there as well we don't air that show as much as our other shows and then, of course, you and I started the Side Vibe uh, a few months ago. I think October, September was the first episode. I don't recall which. August. They kind of run together. It was it was definitely August because we had the um, August. The we had the uh, Siberian Husky Rescue of Florida on, and we were talking about huskies and heat, heat and right. hot weather. Exactly. So we do a lot of uh, radio shows. We have a home studio. That's where we're we're hosting right now with with all the fancy equipment and, and all that. And you know, we just want to educate folks. And, and people really like to hear, hear what we have to say. You know, by by no means are we saying we're the experts of everything. But we like to you know we like to educate folks and at least give them a point of view that they may not have heard somewhere else. And that's what we try to do here on our shows. That's excellent, and you know, of course, I've been a fan of your shows long before you and I even teamed up with this. And you know, I always believe that you know, education's the key with uh, folks being good dog parents. Um, right. You know, sometimes, especially with Siberian Huskies, and I think anyone who works, lives, or deals with Siberian Huskies can t- tell you everybody falls in love with them because they are so adorable. They're so beautiful. You know, their expressive eyes just kind of win your heart right over. Um, and a lot of people who don't have the education or who haven't heard uh, experiences from folks that have them, just go ahead and get one. And all of a sudden they hit that like nine months to year, year and a half mark, and they're surprised. They're surprised 
Why they're surprised, I don't know, because I, I even though a husky kind of takes it to the next level, all dogs will chew things. You know, all dogs are going to tear something up. All dogs, if they're not exercised, are going to be bored. So I, for me, I have a hard time understanding how people are surprised, but they are. And next thing you know, these dogs wind up into the shelters. Um, you know, sometimes they're dumped. Sometimes they're they're rehomed. And a lot of times, you know, these rescues have more than they can handle. So I think it's really excellent to have your shows out there and all this information that, that people can listen in and learn all the various, expe- uh, you know, experiences and all of that with the dogs. I think education is always key. So I'm really thrilled that you guys are out there and, and I love your shows and um, folks who want to listen they can go to your Dog Works radio website and the Facebook to find links to all of your shows isn't that correct? Yes they can listen to all of the archive shows there even some that we aired four years ago of course we've gotten much better in terms of being behind the mic in the last four years but it's always entertaining to hear old shows and what we talked about three, four years ago compared to now. So much has changed, not only in our lives, but in the dogs' lives as well. And it's fun to sit back and listen to some of those old archived podcasts. Ah, yeah, I'm sure it is. You know, it's it is great to hear the you know the transformation over the years, and also too, and like you said, for the readers, um, all the shows have permalinks, so it's wonderful. If someone doesn't catch it live, there's no actual deadline on these shows. Correct? They'll always be there. Exactly. That's wonderful. Uh, For listeners who are just joining us, we are chatting today with Robert Fordo and his daughter Nicole of Team Ineke out of Willow, Alaska. You can follow Robert on Facebook and Twitter under Team Ineke and Dog Works Radio, and his website is teamineke.com. So, Robert, I want to get back to talking about the dogs and mushing. Um, So, for mushing novices, how do you select which of your dogs will run with which position on your team? Well, you, of course, you want the dogs to be in sync no matter what. You you don't want a 70-pound a uh, dog next to a 35-pound dog. You want everybody to kind of be evenly matched. And a lot of it is is uh, personality. You want all the dogs to be able to get along together. You want um, similar gait to be together. And, of course, as I mentioned, similar size. So it, there's a science to picking the dogs on who they're going to run with I know Nicole when she first started out this winter she wanted to run her favorites all the time and that's not necessarily the case sometimes her favorites don't run the best next to to uh, somebody else and of course you want uh, the veterans to run next to the puppies so they can teach each other it's it's definitely uh, a, a cohesive type mentality out there everybody has to run in sync I think that's probably the best way to describe it and. Can you talk about the sled also a little bit? Um, you know, what is it made of? How much can it hold? And how many? Now I know there's different numbers of dogs that get hooked up. And where does that come into play? Whether you run ten, twelve, eight? Well, we have several different types of sleds. We have some of the more traditional wooden type sleds. Uh, we have some really fancy sleds. We have one that Nicole runs all the time that's made out of graphite hockey sticks. Uh, that, that's her sled. And we got a brand new sled a couple of weeks ago. It's called a trail dragger sled. It has kind of a little caboose on the back where you keep your cooler for your dog's snacks and your dog's meal as well as our cooker. It's 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 kind of the caboose portion of the sled uh, made out of really lightweight metal and really high-tech materials from a company here in Willow called Sled Dog Systems. Then we have a couple of great big old, what I like to call tank sleds, great big heavy uh, sleds very very good for training 
heavy heavy sleds so that the dogs can get conditioned and well muscled. Uh, typically, when we're doing training runs, we'll run anywhere from eight to twelve dogs, and we always run with weight in the sled bag just to keep everything so those dogs are running with weight and. They're pulling empty sleds a little bit easier to control. We run with a 50-pound bag of sand in our sleds all the time uh, during training. And then during racing and camping trips, we carry all of our gear. We're totally self-sufficient out there. Probably weighs about 70 pounds of gear with a 30, 40, 50-pound sled plus us. So the dogs are pulling anywhere between uh, 200 to 250 pounds at any given point, uh, depending on the on the size of the gear and the number of dogs on the sled. That's pretty That's impressive. Pretty... Yes. Um, now, what types of equipment items do you take with you on a, on the sled? Well, there's mandatory gear that we always take. That includes an axe, a cold-weather sleeping bag, dog food for the dogs and for the person, a cooker that can boil water because uh, we, we carry frozen food. Of course, when it's minus 25 degrees, we have everything's frozen, so we have to have a way to melt that. Uh, we have booties for the dogs. Uh, we have um, a snow hook and uh, a bag that's capable of carrying a dog inside. The bag is attached to the sled. It has to have ventilation holes. And in case the dog gets injured or, or stops running, we often carry those guys in the sled with us. I know I have several pictures of several dogs that we've had to carry. That's a pretty common occurrence. A dog will, will get tired or, you know, uh, strain a muscle or whatever so we'll take him off the line and put him in the sled with us and he'll get to ride uh he'll get to ride in luxury while the other guys are out there working <laughs> i have seen a couple of your pictures on there and the one poking his head out looked uh quite content to be in the sled bag <laughs> yes now with the cold temperatures i know a lot of folks who are not involved in mushing um you know worry about whether it's too cold or they run too hard i mean how how does this affect the dogs or does it i mean it seems like they truly truly love their job you know it doesn't matter to them whether we're doing a 5 mile run or a 500 mile run they just love to pull uh, we took out a group of puppies. We call them the Nightmare Crew. They're named Lock, Shock, Barrel, and Burton after the movie The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> and we took those guys out, hooked them up to the to the harness and to the gang line, and they were ready to go the first day. They are truly born to pull. And you mentioned weather. They don't they don't care how cold it is. Dogs run the best in minus 10 to plus 10 so that's the temperature where they run the best that's where they seem to be the most in sync what's you know that's a little bit uh um cold enough where you don't necessarily have to worry about booties and dog coats but too not too warm where you have to worry about them overheating we run dogs if it's below 50 so we run dogs all year and we run in conditions uh at least up here nicole and i this year i think the coldest day we ran was minus 36 Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's cold, but I do know that the the cold is, you know, that they do. And recently I know you scratched from a race because you were thinking of your dogs first, and I so commend this, and I even shared it on my page. Um, You know, we were sad that you couldn't be in the race, but I just think it's commendable because you have such a close eye and such a close relationship with your dogs that the temperature actually got too warm. Isn't that correct? And the trails are not, they become, they pose hazards for the dog. They did, and you know that was that was a tough race for all the mushers. But we ended up; uh, it was a 200-mile race from um, on the Kenai Peninsula, so it was from Kasilaf to Homer, Alaska, and back. And we ran the first 100 miles 
hardest thing I've ever done in my life, literally running up and down mountains. I was off the sled for dang near 24 hours running up and down mountains. And if anybody's seen pictures of me, I'm no marathoner by any stretch of the imagination. But we get into Homer, and it was well above 35 degrees, and it was just too dang hot at that point uh, in, in the race uh, to continue. I know we said that we train in 50-degree weather, but that's in the summertime. We're just doing short two- or three-mile runs around the neighborhood on the ATV, just conditioning runs to keep the dog's muscles loose and stuff. But we were in a race. We were trying to compete, and it was just too dang hot, and our dogs weren't prepared for it, so we had to scratch. Yeah, I totally respect your decision. That's really great, um, you know, the rela- like I said, the relationship and how you care about them. And speaking of weather, because, of course, to us, a lot of this is frigid temperatures that you run in. Um, and when you're out on the trail, how do you how do you prepare for these cold temperatures? Um, and you do some camping out overnight. Obviously, if you're running race, you're out there overnight. I mean, what types of precaution and clothing and things like that do you have to take for yourself and also for the dogs? Well, let's turn that over to Nicole. Let her tell about that. You know, I've done this for so many years. I've gotten down to to the point where I take as little as possible. You know, I like to to run relatively light and probably not enough clothes, and and I stay pretty warm just because I'm used to it. But Nicole, let's let's have you answer that. How do you prepare for the cold, both for yourself and for the dogs? Well, I know for sure on training runs, I don't run with the big down parka like you're supposed to because it's negative 36. But when I went on Willow Junior 100, I took the down parka plus rain gear because that was mandatory. And what happened was because it was so warm, on the way back, I ended up running in just my fleece jacket on the way down until I got to about Vern's house, which was about not even a mile, like half a mile to the finish. And then I put my parka back on and... Usually, I mean, I run pretty light because I know I get hot out there, but the only thing really for me that gets cold is my feet because they don't move very much. You're standing on runners for most of the time unless you're running up hills. What about the dogs? How do you prepare the dogs for the cold? Well, I know you have to watch for the thin dogs or the dogs that don't have as much thick of hair, so you have to run them in coats so they stay warm and that's usually in, like, negative weather when you're camping. That way, if they're shivering, you have to put a coat on them because they're not going to be able to keep warm enough. Right. Now, how do you guys stay warm? I mean, you know, uh, a lot of us, we are, you know, we're down here. Our, what we think is cold is a warm day for you. Um, we watch a lot of the races, you know, the Iditarod on, on TV. You see clippings on the the computer. But how about camping out overnight? I mean, you know, we think here camping out overnight, you know, a tent, a fire. How do you how do you handle the camping out? I mean, it must be cold. How do you how do you get yourselves prepared for that? Well, you know, that's a great question, Dorothy. When when we say that it's warm, it's usually above 30 degrees, and, and that's when we're running without a coat. And I often run just in a sweatshirt, and people down in the lower 48 think, oh, my goodness, I've got to run out and buy a parka and a big hat and, you know, great big old mittens to just to go from the car to work uh, mm-hmm. when it's that cold. But for us, uh, that's a warm day, and since we're so acclimated to the temperatures, uh, we get used to it re- relatively quickly. But in terms of camping, I know uh, a few months ago, Nicole did her first camping trip on her own, and it was minus 20, I believe. We went to a lake about 15 miles from home, actually about 10 miles from home here, and she did her first camping trip. Tell us a little bit about that, Nicole. Well, it was negative 30, not negative Well, negative 30. Negative 30. <laughs> negative 30. Um, 
my feet were wet, and pretty much I did all the stuff with the dogs, fed them, got them all done. Didn't even bother taking the sleeping bag out because I was tired and I was cold. So what I learned to do was sleep in my sled, and I had my parka, so I put my parka over me, and I was fine. And then it ended up being a four-hour camping trip, so two hours to feed and then two hours for them to rest. Well, at about an hour and a half, I got up, started bootying, and I was shivering so much, it took me half an hour just to get the dogs to booty. And by that time, our leader, Denali, was ready to go, didn't want to follow the snow machine trail that you made, wanted to turn around, so he turned all the dogs around, caused a big tangle, so I had to undo that. And by the time I was on my way, I was already about 10 minutes later than I was going to leave in the first place. So... And finally, we were on our way back, and then Denali just ran him really quick home. <laughs> you know, Dorothy, if we could, uh, just just inter- let me interject here for just a second. A lot of people think that we're camping with the dogs. We're out there, like you said, with the tent and the campfire and, you know, telling stories over hot chocolate. But it's not that way. When we go camping with the sled dogs, we're tending to the dogs most of the time in a six-hour rest, as Nicole mentioned, a four-hour rest. We're spending at least two to two and a half hours of that four to six hour rest tending to the dog. So very little sleep or downtime is arranged for the musher at these camping trips, and especially during races at checkpoints. Well, I imagine you guys must take a nice rest when you come back in. Nicole? Well, on my Willow Junior 100 race, I slept for about 25 minutes, um, and then I ended up waking up and just, kind of sat, watched my dogs, didn't really bother them because it agitates them if you bother them. And then what happened was when I got home, I was so tired that I couldn't sleep. And then I ended up going to the banquet and everything. And then finally I came home and it it was 7.30 and I just, I passed out. (laughs) Now, what pops into my mind, of course, is food. Um, You know, another favorite pastime. Uh, Food for you and food for the dogs. Um, You know, there's obviously no drive-through out on the trails. So I know you were talking about, Robert, that there's a boiler and and, because everything's frozen. How do you prepare your meals and also for the dogs? Well, I'm going to say my piece and definitely let her, Nicole, say hers because everybody has a little bit different way of doing things. But when a dog team is out on the trail, We're snacking about every two hours out on the trail. We're typically snacking either fish, salmon, or what we call energy bars for the dogs, where it's a mixture of dry kibble, peanut butter, and bacon fat. And we put them in muffin tins and freeze them up, uh, and we feed those to the dogs. But on a a training run or a race, dogs are eating where between 10 to 30,000 calories a day because they're, they're running marathons out there. Uh, we're typically doing 20 to 40 mile runs, so we're doing a marathon, almost two marathons every day with the dogs. Uh, so it's a lot of calories that need to be burned. Human food is kind of an afterthought. Uh, we do a lot of food in the food savers where we freeze things up, and uh, lots of you know trail snacks, whether it be um, you know beef jerky and things like that. A big thing that we use is Capri Suns, the little Capri Sun pouches. We put them uh, in our parka. I put them underneath my arms to keep them from freezing uh, when I'm out there on the trail. and That's where we get our hydration. Uh, I I often pack pizza in the uh, food saver and just throw that a little bit in the boiling water 
and it melts it a little bit, and then we enjoy that on the trail. Nicole, what do you take out on the trail? Well, I know for me on my race, I took a whole bunch of fruit roll-ups and a lot of five-hour energies, <laughs> and I took pizza expecting, oh, well, when I get to the checkpoint, I'll be hungry, I'll be able to eat after I feed the dogs, and for me, it was I'm so tired, I just want to get the dogs done and rest, and I didn't even want to eat anything. And so pretty much on the way up Hatcher's Pass, I, so to speak, had to force myself to eat fruit roll-ups because I hadn't been eating, and I, my biggest concern was staying hydrated because it was so warm for me and for the dogs, and on your race, I know you didn't stay hydrated enough, so it was pretty much all for me was drinking water. You know, that's a great point, Nicole. When I was doing the Testamina 200, as I mentioned earlier, it was straight up and down, literally running mountains, and I did not prepare well. I did not know what to expect on that race. I, I made a big rookie mistake and didn't take enough uh, things to keep me hydrated. And I could feel I could feel it getting serious relatively quickly. And I literally ate snow for 10 hours, just running down the trail, grabbing handfuls of snow and eating it just to stay hydrated so I wouldn't get uh, uh, dehydration or possibly hyperthermia or anything like that. It, it got relatively dangerous relatively quickly. And uh, a lot of people think, wow, you're, you're eating snow for that long? I had to. It was it was one of those things where survival kicked, it, kicked in. Wow, that's that's quite something else. Uh, that can be a little scary. Um, it was. Now, Nicole, I know you're, you're a junior musher and you're a teenager. How old are you? Do you mind my asking? I'm 15. I'll be 16 in July. Wonderful. Now, I imagine a lot of work and time is spent with the dogs and preparing for, you know, taking them out on runs and for the races. Um, I know I was an equestrian in my youth, and I used to raise, train, and show horses, so I, I know the commitment and the love that it takes, and I loved being with them so much that I didn't really feel like I was missing out on anything with my friends. Is it the same for you? Because, you know, it takes a lot of commitment, a lot of time, so there's not the time to kind of, you know, hang out with friends and do other things, and, you know, how is that for you? Well, what it's getting is now, since it's getting closer and closer to off-season, it's pretty much for me, I'm not going to have anything to do. <laughs> and so, I mean, my other love of sport, uh, softball, is starting. And so now pretty much for me, it's just feeding and taking care of the dogs and spending time with them because they have to have that human interaction. And then now I'm getting ready for softball. So pretty much even if I wanted to, hang out with my friends, I couldn't just because I'm doing two different sports and I have a lot of commitment to both of them. And the sports are what's making you happy, and I would assume. So it's, Exactly. So you're not really feeling like you're missing out on anything. Can you kind of walk folks through, like, what what is a teenager's day in Alaska with sled dogs and getting ready, like, at your busiest point in the season of sledding? Well, um, I know right before the Testamina probably was our busiest week. Um I feed in the morning, so that's the three five-gallon buckets, ten scoops per bucket, so that's all the dogs. And then picking up the poop sometimes two, three, four times a day, and then we would run two hours every night, whether it was at seven at night, six at night, or eight o'clock at night. And so it got pretty exhausting. I know I went out for the first couple times that week on my own for my own runs. And my biggest thing the whole season was getting lost. And I had one of our really, really old veteran leaders, and he did perfect 
led us back home, didn't get lost, didn't second-guess anything. So um, pretty much I think that I had a really old veteran leader. <laughs> so, so so a little bit of uh, perspective there. Typically during that time she would feed in the morning before school, go to school all day, come back. We would feed right after school was out, run the dogs, do all the dog chores, and then finally eat dinner between 9 or 10 o'clock. I know this isn't probably the healthiest way to live in terms of a teenager life, but that's how we do it in the winter. Eat at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and then uh, we're just exhausted. We're, we're all in bed 10 or 11 o'clock, and it starts all over again the next day. And this happens seven days a week. There aren't any off days. Uh, it, it's very rare that we will, uh, you know, go to the mall or to the movies. I don't know how long it's been since we've been to the movies. Uh, I haven't been to the movies since last year. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are kind of making your own movie, a real live one, right? We are. We are. <laughs> now, um, what do you both see as the biggest challenge to mushing? Because you both will bring a different perspective in on this. Uh, for me, the biggest challenge is to make sure that we have everything prepared to go when we go. Uh, a good friend of mine, I mentioned his name earlier, his name is Dave Shear. He he is pretty much my mentor. He said that you need to race as you train. So a race should be exactly as, as if you're out there on a training run. Don't make any bigger effort than it is. And that's what I try to do, but that's the biggest challenge to make sure, and that's what happened to me on the Testamina. I wasn't prepared for that trail. Uh, I'm used to running here in Willow, which is relatively flat, 200 200-foot elevations, and we were down there in 3,000-foot elevations. So I wasn't able to do uh, that that training plan, train as a race as I train. That's my biggest struggle is to get out there and, and do training runs and, and preparations that are going to prepare me for the trail, whether it be Iditarod or even one of those mid-distance races, as I mentioned, the Testamina. Nicole, what's your biggest challenge? I think my biggest challenge was being confident in myself for my race because if you're not confident in yourself, you can't be confident in the dogs, and then the dogs aren't going to want to run. And what happened to me was I started out good, and then I got passed by everyone. And then in my head I was like, well, you can't can't think of this as a bad thing. You know, your dogs like it slow and steady. They pace themselves. They're not going to get too tired too quickly. And, you know, for me it was just making sure my confidence was up and not giving up on the dogs. And then what happened on the way back was – Reagan, uh, our Siberian, pretty much gave up on me and then caused my leader, Sydney, to give up. So I had to do a couple switching around, and I pretty much had a talk with Reagan that she needed to finish the race, that she hasn't finished a race yet, and all I wanted was to finish a race and get the dogs to finish a race. Typical Siberian, huh, Dorothy? They make up their own mind. Yes, they do, and I'm, I'm kind of chuckling here, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are too, that when you say you talk to him, because when I first uh, when we first got Siberians here, my daughter got uh, Harley. She's our first one. And what happened is I come from a different way of training, and, you know, it's, I always did uh, positive reinforcement. You teach a dog, they learn, they do it. Harley had a completely different agenda. She would do it once and then will seriously look at you, give you her fluff tail, and just like, um, I already know this. I'm not doing this again. You know, stop asking me. So I had to learn, and my daughter said to me, you have to talk to her. You can't You can't just, you know, give her a command. or You have to seriously have a conversation. And I'm like, I have to. 
I do, I and do. I started talking to her, and, and I'll be darned, the dog, dog actually, we connected, and that is that how is we have to work with Harley. Harley. She still gets her mood, so, yeah, yeah. still Harley's Harley. way, <laughs> but uh, I love that, because, yes, yes. yes. Siberians, you do have you to talk to them. You know, that, that, that's what we call Reagan. We call her the princess. She She's a little prissy. She gets to stay in the house. Uh, but she's a dang good sled dog. We had her in lead just the other day with, with one of our old veteran dogs, Denali, and she did awesome. So I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of um, hope for these guys, for, especially for Bodie and Reagan, uh, our, our two main uh, racing Siberians right now. We have another one named Dandy who we got from the Norris Kennel, whose history goes way, way back in terms of Siberians. Hopefully we can talk about that on another show. But, uh, you know, those Siberians, they're, they're tough customers, that's for sure, huh, Nicole? Oh, yes. Reagan, um, on the race, I pretty much, it was, Right at the swamp, so about 15 miles into the last fifth or last 25, and uh, she pretty much stopped, stopped the entire team. I didn't even have to set a hook; that they just stopped, and so went up to my leaders, pulled Ringo and Sydney, who were my leaders at the time, out, made the line tight, and Reagan pretty much just laid down in front of me, wouldn't get up, and so I had a mini panic attack calmed down, looked at uh, one of my wheel dogs, Spencer. He was just like, gave me a look that said, you know, we have to finish this for you and for us. And so told Reagan that I'm not letting her quit on me and that we're finishing. And then the rest of the race, I pretty much talked to her the whole time. I know it was probably irritating for the rest of the team, but I got her to finish. So I think that's that's important. That's I was just going to ask you about that, Robert, the communication. So, yes. yeah, if you yes. can talk about that. You know, not necessarily in terms of being important here, but it's important that all the dogs finished in that race. All the dogs finished happy. They all came back with wagging tails and ready to go. Nobody came back injured. Everybody, You know, a sore shoulder here and there, which is to be expected in a 100-mile race. But everybody was, was happy and ready to go the next day after their rest. Uh, so that was the important thing for Nicole and her team. But you mentioned communication. That is key. Uh, she, Nicole had mentioned that you don't want to talk to your dogs all the time. A, a musher doesn't uh, mush down the trail constantly talking to their dogs. I talk very little to my dogs. I'm typically just telling them the commands and that's it. They will learn to tune you out very quickly. I know some people are a little bit different. Some people sing down the trail and, and hum and whistle and carry on. I, I just don't do that. I, I'm a pretty... Uh, pretty silent musher so communication is key but it's not always that voice command it's how you interact with them how you associate with them how they know what to expect from you and you know what to expect from them that's the true communication that's going on out there in that team because you're literally out there in the middle of nowhere with no one i'm sure nicole can tell you that on more than one occasion out there not only on her race but on training runs where she's 30 or 40 miles away from home and if the dogs don't perform she has to walk home Tell us a little bit about that, Nicole. Well, I've never had to walk home, um, but it's pretty much when you're out there, whether you're out there by yourself or I'm with you or with some Tyler or Mom, it's pretty much that, well, the only lifeline you have is the 8 to 12 dogs you have, and at that point, it's pretty much your family right there, and for me on my race, it was those 10 dogs were all I had and they were my lifeline and they were my way home and I wasn't letting them quit and I wasn't quitting on them. That's 
how I thought of the race the whole time, whether we placed or not. And that's why I was happy that we finished and all of us were good. And then what happened was we got back to Vern's and they were excited to run home. So I just rode the sled home since we were a mile from Vern's. Uh, Vern, Vern Halter, he's an Iditarod musher. He lives in our neighborhood uh, right down the street, Dorothy. He is the uh, he is the guy that uh, that helps put on this Willow Junior 100 and give so much back to the community. Uh, he uh, puts on the race every year from his kennel, which is just a mile down the street from us. Okay. Um, you, you know, I'm listening. I'm listening to Nicole talk, and I have to say, as a, as a parent, Robert, you must be extremely proud of her. Yes. Yeah, we're very proud of her. Not only me, but her mom and. Her brother was cheering her on so much, and we had a couple of our our, our sponsors that were out uh, at the at the race, and there's pictures of them, you know, giving the high fives and cheering as she runs off. It is just so cool to to be a part of this, and you know, I, I said one time on a Facebook post or something, probably the best thing that we could have ever done for our kids was get them out of the city. You know, we were in Denver; we, they weren't in the best schools. We were. In in uh, in Aurora, Colorado, and everybody knows what happened in Aurora not too long ago. We lived uh, right. two miles from that theater. Uh, it was a rough, rough area. Uh, we lived in a nice neighborhood, but the schools were relatively rough. And we took the kids out of that environment and into a school like like where they're at now, with three or four hundred kids. And like Nicole said, it's just so welcoming here. That's and great. Now. I have a quick question for you. I know we're getting up to the top of the hour, but I still have a few more things I want to chat with both of you about. Our listeners can definitely continue listening to this once our permalink put up. Is that correct? Yes, we can definitely carry over for a few minutes afterwards because we have a big announcement here on the side vibe. We had just talked about this off air. Uh, Nicole is going to make a couple of big announcements. So let's do that so the live listeners can hear what's happening next year. Well, next year I am I've decided I'm doing the junior I did a run, which is still a hundred miles. Hundred and eighty miles. Hundred and eighty. Hundred and eighty miles and it's from Big Lake up to Yetna. And back. And then it's back and so I get a scholarship if I finish. So again my goal will be to finish. Oh, that's right. awesome. Oh, we're gonna definitely be rooting for you and watching and I know there'll be lots of updates and that's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Nicole, what are your what hopes are your for the future? And what's up next for you and Team Eneke? Obviously, now we have the Junior Iditarod. So what will you do between here and you know, now and now? Well, I'm hoping to train up our bigger, more Alaskan dogs. They're much bigger. They're about the size of my German Shepherd but with more muscle and more ability to pull because they have the husky in them as well. And so if we could get them to learn how to camp, which is what we're planning on this summer and the season to come, is getting those bigger dogs to be able to camp, and they'll pull a lot harder and a lot faster, and that way we train them up, and I might even be able to place in the junior Iditarod. Excellent. excellent. This is excellent. Now, Robert, now, Robert we, I have a couple, have a couple brief announcements. Brief I just want to make them quick before we sure. go off air and we'll go back. Okay. Um, first, uh, I just want to let listeners know, a lot of the uh, listeners and readers know I'm working on a book um, about epileptic dogs, um, dogs with canine epilepsy and seizures, living their lives and being loved. And um, I have put out a call for submissions, and the deadline for submissions on the book and on the amazing and courageous epi dogs um, is fast approaching. It's March 1st, so all stories 
stories and photos of anyone who has um, a dog or who had a dog in their life uh, that had seizure uh, seizure disorder or epilepsy and would like to have it become part of my book, you know, please go to my blog, fivesibes.blogspot.com, and it is posted there. Uh, not only will this book pay tribute to the amazing and courageous dogs, but a percentage of the proceeds will benefit the Canine Epilepsy Resources site at www.canineepilepsy.com, which is home to the Apple Canine List and supports Emma's fund, and it's provided by the Apple Canine Foundation. Um, I'm also celebrating my Five Sibes third blog anniversary, and all the information's over on my blog. Um, but I did want to say that I am doing um, uh, a celebratory drawing uh, for one of my What's Wrong with Gibson Learning About Canine Epilepsy books, and also a live. Uh, Gibbs Strong Canine Epilepsy Awareness Bracelet. So folks have until, um, I believe, March 2nd to go over there and uh, enter to win. And just have to go in, do a couple things on the raffle copter, like leave a comment, and uh, you're in it to win. And uh, thirdly, uh, I just wanted to mention that um, March 2nd is Robert's birthday. Is that correct, Robert? That is correct. So, and it, so your birthday is actually kicking off the Iditarod this year. It is. So happy birthday, and uh, good luck to all the mushers and sled dogs. And uh, I just want to put a little promo in here for next month's show, and then we'll get back to chatting. Um, on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, uh, we'll be chatting with guest Jessica Snowdog Hatch of Gone to the Snowdogs fame. Her huskies Shiloh, Shelby, and Oakley are the very popular husky stars of YouTube fame. Jessica and her husband Jamie currently have over 14,000 subscribers and more than 4 million video views on their YouTube channel. And folks can watch Jessica, Jamie, and the Snowdogs share their lives in Siberian husky tips, ranging from pointers on sledding and bike touring to whipping up some delicious canines recipes and the ever-favorite Fan Friday videos, where they answer questions each week sent in from viewers across the globe. Their husky Shiloh was pictured on a Michigan State lottery ticket. Shelby is the 2011 husky face on the Bissell vacuum cleaner box, and both Shiloh and Shelby were featured in a segment of Animal Planet's Bad Dog. They also have an online pet store on GoneToTheSnowDogs.com and a whole community Facebook page um, as well, where they chat with a lot of their fans. So it should be a fun show to chat with Jeff Jessica, and see what adventures are up next for her and her snow dogs. Um, getting back to talking, um, Nicole, what is it like, uh, you know, um, mushing with Dad? Well, I know for me, the first uh, couple weeks when we didn't have much snow, I was on the drag sled, and uh, everyone I've talked to, um, my doctor and my mom both said that the drag sled pretty much killed them, and it, I was fine on it. I didn't end up with any bruises or broken items or anything. And I guess for me it was just easier. And also the all the training runs we've done has taught me a lot. Uh, it's kind of hard sometimes because I got my hard-headedness from my dad and we bump heads a lot. But pretty much uh, it's taught me a lot, not just about mushing, but responsibility and being able to take care of stuff and, you know, planning things for the future and going for it wholeheartedly. Now, for yeah. listeners just joining in, we're chatting today with Robert Fordo and his daughter, Nicole, of Team Ineke out of Willow, Alaska. And you can follow Robert on Facebook and Twitter under Team Ineke and Dog Works Radio and his website, teamineke.com. Uh, I will be posting a follow-up blog on Robert, Nicole, and Team Ineke, along with a link to this show on my Five Sides blog, fivesides.blogspot.com. And there will also be links over on the new Five Sides blog at Five Sides. 
Try saying that three times. The sidebyblogs.blogspot.com and on my Facebook page. Robert, it's wonderful that your entire family at one time or another has been involved in the family business, and that includes your wife, Michelle, daughter, Nicole, and sons, Tyler and Kyle. Now, today, Michelle, Nicole, and Tyler, they're all you know, integral you know, members of the team in NECA. Can you tell us about the role each family member has had in the past? Well, we've been, like I said, we've been mushing together since about 2000, uh, when Nicole was just a little kid, three years old at that point. Uh, Tyler, he, right now, he is our main handler. He takes care of all of the all of the stuff behind the scenes, if if you have any NASCAR fans out there, he is the pit crew. He takes care of all the gear and things as we're getting ready to prepare to run. And, you know, he's an integral part of the team. Of course, he does run teams with us as well. And then Michelle, she, uh, like it or not, and she'll be the first to tell you, she is the uh, she's the breadwinner of the, of the team right now. She has the good job and works 9 to 5, so to speak, Monday through Friday. Uh, but she also is an integral part of the team. She not only handles for us um, when we're going out on training runs, but every Sunday is her day. Uh, she and I go out together and, and run a team together. We're planning on doing that when we come back from our dog training client this afternoon. So everybody yeah. runs the dogs. Uh, we ha- we typically run two teams at a time. Uh, we have 26 dogs, I believe, right now that are of running age or capacity, so we're taking those guys out as as much as we possibly can, and then throwing in the guys that, that may not get to run one day, we run them the next, and so on and so forth. So everybody has an integral part. But the key to this, Dorothy, is, is it, it's all the stuff that happens off the runners. Uh, it, is, it, it is truly another job for all of us. We come home from work or school, and we're doing another four, six, eight hours after work uh, of, of 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 work with the dogs, whether it's you know running dogs on the trails or feeding and prepping food, we spend I don't know how many nights out there in the cold uh, garage cutting up meat uh, for, for preparation for the meal. So we spend a lot of time out there just working together, preparing for and running the dogs. Isn't that right, Nicole? Well, along with that, sometimes it's just not even all work because I know for me, like. On Friday, I didn't feed at all. On Friday, I didn't even see any of the kennel dogs till Saturday morning. And it was, like, brand new. It was like I came out and I've been gone for a month, and all the dogs' faces lit up, and I got hugs and kisses without even feeding. And it's amazing to see how much they really do miss you, even though pretty much all you're doing is work. Now, I was going to ask you both, and, Nicole, that might just expand on what you actually just said, was what do you find to be the most rewarding aspect to mushing and having sled dogs? Definitely for me it's uh, going in, whether it's the very next day or I don't feed for a day and then I come and I feed. And it's just it's to see the dogs, you know. It's, it's amazing how much of a bond you really have, and it's not even over – food or even if you're running maybe sometimes you know you go down there in the middle of the day or when I get home from school or one of the days on the weekend when I just I'm down there and it's amazing to see how happy they get just to see you whether you're you've got the buckets of food or you're picking up their poop or you're running them it's just they get so happy and they especially our one of our leaders Denali he has a clown smile and he just smiles at you and he'll jump on you and he barks and 
all of them do it, and it's amazing to see how happy they really get just to see you. And, Robert, what's the most rewarding for you? You know, I, I thought about this a lot, and I know we mentioned it in our article. One of the most rewarding things right now is just seeing the kids do what they do. You know, I know Nicole will be the first one to tell you that I'm hard on her. I, I, I push her, and, I, I, I you know, I'm not the best coach. I'm I'm out there doing my thing, making sure that she's prepared because it, it's a dangerous thing to be out there, and I think she'll tell you that, that she's probably glad I was hard on her once or twice. But I, it, that's probably the most rewarding thing for a long time, Dorothy. I was so set on running the Iditarod, and right now I don't care. You know, I, I want to make sure that the kids are doing what they're doing, uh, as as a lady mentioned at Nicole's banquet at the Willow Junior 100, she goes, you can run races anytime. Spend the time with the kids. And that's what we're doing, and that's probably what's the most rewarding is, is we're out there as a family, and we're doing it as a family. You know, that's pretty rare in mushing. Most of the time, mushers... They don't have they don't have kids or their kids are grown and they're retired you know and they're they're doing this as their second career. We're one of the very few families out there that do this as a family, and I think that's probably what the, is the re- most rewarding. I think that's wonderful. Now, Robert, uh, can folks sponsor Team Ineke, and if so, how? They can. Uh, you know, lots of people sponsor mushing teams. And one thing I want to mention is we're not asking for handouts by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we pretty much do this uh, on our own. You know, we, we, we work, we, you know, we work hard. Um, we, we don't ask for, for money for things. If, you know, if people want to, to donate to Team Neke, they can do it just because they love what we're doing and, and love, love the sport and love the dogs. And they can donate any amount, or you know, whether it be a dollar, two dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever. But everything that that a person donates goes directly to the dogs. Almost every dime that we have goes to the dogs. Isn't that right, Nicole? Well, yeah. And um, along with the sponsors thing, uh, we have a sponsor. Her name's Kathy, and uh, she's making me a beaver hat out um, for the trail, so my head doesn't get cold. And so that's another way that we get our sponsors. We do. Uh, you know, a lot of times people will will just sponsor us for in-kind gifts. I know uh, a guy that was just so happy for Nicole out there on the trail. His name is Dale Campbell. He owns an upholstery shop, and he made all of the dog coats for our dogs. And he was out there cheering so hard, uh, Dorothy. He was he, he was like a kid in a candy store out oh. there. You know, he, he donated a little bit of his time, and that's all. You know, that's so great to have people part of the team. You know, when people sponsor us, we want them to be a part of the team. We, they aren't just a number. Or they aren't just a person that donated X number of dollars. I want them to be a part of the team, and they can follow us along. They can ask questions. They can get to meet us and the dogs and, you know, become a part of the team. That's what's so important. I think that's great. Now, if someone was interested, they can just contact you right through Facebook or your website? Yes, com, or I probably spend more time on the Facebook than I do the website. We haven't updated the website in a while uh, because, you know, as you know, Dorothy, that that uh, that, na- that pesky Facebook, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy just to update it right there on, on our iPhones as we're, as it, we're doing it, our daily it, da- tasks. So, yes, it really is. Definitely I guess the Facebook our- and social networking has come a long way from those listservs, haven't they? They sure have. When we found a decade back in 2000, it was, you know, wait and see and wait for emails to come back. And now we can see if somebody's online with that little green dot on Facebook. 
Yeah, it's terrific. I mean, I've I've met so many wonderful people through Facebook, through through Twitter, through Instagram. It's just I feel it's a wonderful community, the Siberian Husky and the canine community, you know, as a whole even. It's just a, a great group of people and I know we appreciate the support and I know you do too. Robert, what's what's up next year? I know earlier you talked about the Adidrog might be two thousand fourteen or fifteen and also I know you have some other projects in the work, so do you wanna kinda of fill us in? Yes, my plan right now is still new to do Iditarod in 2014. I say it's a plan because a person just can't come up and sign up for the Iditarod. You have to qualify for the Iditarod, and that means running in and finishing several races. Uh, and I'm, I'm planning to do at least one more race this year as long as the snow holds up, and then, of course, several more races next year. So if we get all those done, we can apply for Iditarod in 2014. You always have to apply the year previous, so I have to be able to apply by June of the year I'm going to run. So that's the plan, 2014. Uh, but again, I'm just enjoying the time out there on the on the on the runners, spending the time out there with with Nicole and 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 Tyler and Michelle. You know, they're going to be growing up and moving out pretty soon. Nicole is a is a uh, is a sophomore right now, so she has two more years before college. She's planning on going to college. Maybe she can mention that before before she gets off air. And Nicole, where, are you, where are you thinking about going? Nicole? I'm going, thinking about going to Alaska Pacific University in um, Anchorage and then possibly going there for two years and then transferring down to UAS, which is the University of Alaska Southeast, which is in Juneau. And what and do you, you want to do? you have a major course of study that you're going for? Um, marine biology. And then what I'm looking to do is become a marine mammalologist. Excellent. That's wonderful. Lots of luck to you. Thanks. And Robert, any other projects that you're you've got in the cooker? Yeah, uh, Michelle and I are working on a book, uh, a little children's book. Um, it's about a and our new Siberian guys um, and how they've kind of taken on his legacy. We're, we're that's in the works right now. I know you and I are working on that together, as well as. Excuse me, Michelle, and also an illustrator. We hope to have that out uh, sometime this spring, late spring, early summer. We're also working on um, some speaking tours. Uh, I hope to get out to to your neck of the woods, uh, upstate New York, New England. I hope so, area. too. Yes, I hope to get out there and do a mushing talk or two, maybe bring a dog along and, and some gear and, and, and tell the stories that we tell so often here on the radio but in person. And you can get uh, get up close and personal with us. So I hope to do that um, this spring, early summer, and then, of course, try to get down into into the south. I haven't uh, been over to my mom's place in, in North Carolina in a long time. I know we talked last week about uh, heading down that way. Uh, sometime this summer, maybe to do a, a mushing talk or two. We want to build up a fan base for Team Ineke and the sport of mushing throughout the country. It's not just an Alaska thing. It's not just a cold weather thing. You know, it's it's a lifestyle, Dorothy. That's what we that's what we live up here, and I think it's a pretty dang good lifestyle that we lead. It's it's hard work. It 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 takes us back to to the days where where you know you had to go out there and you know chop wood and you know, go after the next meal, so to speak. We don't rely on everything like so many people do today. So I think we have a really good story uh, to tell. And, you know, that, that's that's what our goal is, to tell stories, so to tell positive stories. 
And we'll be keeping folks up to date on the progress of both the book and your and your tour um, via your Facebook, my Facebook, the blog, and Twitter so that folks can know when you start heading down here toward the lower 48 because I'm sure there's a lot of people on the way that would definitely like to meet you and, and your sled dog and, uh, you know, and hear what you have to say. Well, thank you very much. I know we'll definitely uh, get everybody involved as much as we can. I know you have a couple of things in the work for us down there in your area, so I'm looking forward to uh, to, to finally meeting you and visiting your guys and you know sitting back and, and, and telling a few Siberian stories for sure. Yeah, and like you said, maybe we can even do a show live from one of the places down here. That would be a lot of fun. There you go. Anything Rob, else for no, Nicole? No, I was just Nicole. Yeah. Anything else that you'd like to add or share with anyone before we go off air? Uh. Just um, along with the teaching thing of uh, how it's hard work and all of this, well, it's to me it hasn't even been work anymore. It's more it's been teaching me because I'm such an independent person that, you know, the dogs are something I have to rely on, so I can't just rely on myself. So it's it's not only teaching me, you know, good work with animals and all of this, well, it's also teaching me work experience in general and how even though sometimes you don't want to, you're going to have to deal with relying on other people and not just have to get stuff done yourself. And so it's it's teaching me a lot of stuff that a year ago I wouldn't have even known or wanted to know. What a wonderful life lesson. Uh and I'm sure that there's a lot of other youth that would, you know, love to hear, you know, what you have to say. And if anyone had any questions or if there are any teenagers out there who are interested in both the dogs, the sport, or Alaska, I mean, uh could they get in touch with you via your dad? Uh yeah, on Team Aneke or on my Facebook page, I'm located with them and on Team Aneke's website too. So that's great. So if there are any youth out there who would like to, you know, find out um, more of what Nicole thinks or about uh, a teenager with being being a junior musher, just put it to Robert's attention, whatever question you have, and post on Facebook or over on their webpage. And that would be great because I know Robert and Nicole, you guys are great. You're always, you know, uh, very accessible. And, Robert, you're terrific, too, always, you know, right there to answer questions and, and chat with people. And, Robert, is there anything that you want to add before we sign off? No, I'm just privileged to be on the other side of the mic for once. I'm usually the one that has to prepare all the questions. So sometimes I might feel uh, a little bossy and want to point it in one direction or another. That's just kind of my nature. So, Dorothy, thank you very much for for turning the table, so to speak, on me today. It was it was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate that. And, and like uh, you had just mentioned, you can always send questions or comments to us on any social media. We'll make sure that we answer them. I try to answer them. As best as I can on any question, whether it's dog behavior questions or training or about mushing or about what we do up here, I can definitely help you out there. But I, I just want to focus that follow follow Nicole on the trail. You know, she's going to do a lot of great things this year. I know Tyler is trying to, trying to run a race or two coming up, but next year we're, it's going to be the first time ever that we're going to be able to enter two teams in a lot of things. You know, for a long time it's just about getting that one team to the starting line, but now next year since we have these puppies ready to go, we'll be able to enter both teams. And I think we're go- I don't know if we're going to be a force to be reckoned with in terms of winning, but we're going to be a force out there that's going to uh, try to spread that message a little bit about what we do and what we're about. I think it's great. Family Force 4 or Family Force Forto. There you go. There you go. I wish 
you guys all the best. Nicole, it's been awesome chatting with you. I really loved getting your perspective. And, Robert, it's always a pleasure, and I had a great time flipping the tables. Um, I just want to say, you know, thank you to you both, um, and thank you for kicking off the Iditarod season with us here at the Side Vibe. And, uh, again, listeners and readers can read more about Team Ineke, uh, Nicole and Robert, over on their Facebook page and also at teamineke.com and on Twitter. Can I mention one other thing about Iditarod before we go? Sure. Every night, starting March 1st, mushingradio.com, me and a friend of mine, his name is Alex Stein. He lives in Southern California, and he is a huge mushing fan. He made a documentary called Mush uh, that aired uh, a couple of years ago up here in Alaska. He and I are going to host a nightly show during Iditarod on Mushing Radio, mushingradio.com. We'll have daily perspective, daily stories about these guys. Uh, I know that a lot of people follow Iditarod on social media. You can listen to us every night during Iditarod on mushingradio.com. And I'll be sure to post some of those links over on my page, too, so folks can keep up. Thank you very much, Dorothy. We'll talk again soon, okay? All right. Take care. Bye, Robert. Bye, Nicole. Bye. This is Robert Fortall on behalf of our co-host, Today, Dorothy Wills Raftery calling in from her home in North Carolina and sitting beside me, my Nicole Forto. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.